We've covered a lot of ground so far. We've talked about a divorce, which is a strange word to use when speaking of in religious circles. It's certainly not a good thing, and it wasn't a good thing here when Judaism and Christianity parted ways. And we've looked quite, uh, quite painfully at some of the roots of that. And speaking of roots, we've also replanted Yeshua, Jesus, really. We replanted Jesus in his native Israeli Jewish soil and saw the 100% Jewish Yeshua from birth to death, even from resurrection to return, all of it viewed last week, particularly through a very Jewish lens. And that, as I said, is not up for debate. Only the most ignorant of anti-Semites have ever tried to argue that Jesus did not live in a Jewish world as a Jew. But... This week it gets even more interesting because where, here, here we come up against some real friction in today's material. As if it hasn't been friction before, right? But this is real friction because now we need to talk about what Yeshua actually taught. Talked about how it got there and who he was and what he grew up around. But what did he teach? What was he doing? And, and the, fine, one might say, yeah, he was Jewish, Okay, I get it. But what he taught, you know, what he taught and how he lived and encouraged others to be, that was so un-Jewish. That was so not Jewish. That was like nothing ever seen before. That was something just, you know, he was Jewish by birth maybe, but Christian by practice. That idea has been around for a long, long time. So we need to answer these two questions. We need to end today with an answer to these. Was his teaching in line with the Jewish teaching of the day, and even of today? Or was it, as been supposed, a radical and revolutionary new thing? After all, it's called the New Testament. It's the New Covenant, right? It's all of these new things. So something radically new, the New Covenant. We're new creations in Yeshua. So surely it could be possible that he abandoned all of that Jewish foundation, right? Obviously, you know where we're headed, so it's not much of a rhetorical device, but I thought I'd throw it in there anyway. Let's find out. And we're going to do this by way of a, I want to say brief, but I actually need, I need to talk to you for just a little while today because this is a ton of material. I want to make it very digestible and simple with a couple of key points, but it will take me just a minute to do that. So I hope that you can stay with me. The first thing we need to do is we need to make sense of the Judaism of Yeshua's day. That is a very, very important thing. So, what does that look like? Let me see. Let me see. Let me see. Come on. Mm. Huh. Yes. Yes. Sadducees, Pharisees, zealots, oh my! And once again, some history more than theology, because this is what that looks like. This was, in Yeshua's day, Judaism was 
There was a milieu, I love that word, milieu of Jewish practice. Sadducees, who were they? A corrupt and money-driven, power-hoarding group of guys that no one really liked. That sounds like I'm exaggerating. That's not true. But actually, somebody did like the Sadducees. Do you know who it was? They did, yes, and so did Rome. Rome really liked the Sadducees. But because Rome liked them, no one else really liked them. The Sadducees were, by Rome's sort of puppet to a degree. And you can see that happening historically. That started way back, though, before the Sadducees. We had, well, I'm not going to get into the history of that. But with, so then we had Sadducees. We had Essenes. You familiar with Essenes? The Essenes were the guys who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. They lived out, if you go to Israel with us, we'll go out to the Dead Sea area, we'll go to Qumran, where the Essenes had pulled back from Israel, Why, from Jerusalem. Why did they pull back? Because it's quite possible that they were a group of priests who were absolutely disgusted with what they saw going on in the temple through the Sadducean leadership. So they withdrew. The Sadducees, the Essenes, we had the Zealots. Who were the Zealots? The Zealots were the radicals. The Zealots were the ones who wanted Rome out, destroy, kill, maim, and destroy at all cost. Even Jews, the Zealots, would kill. And we see that history. But of course, I saved the best for last. And who might the best be? Of course, we know it is those nasty old Pharisees, right? They're the most popular. The Pharisees, the pushim, from the Hebrew word parush, which means distinct, set apart. It means they were, they were distinguished. They were the set apart ones. But what do we really know the, what, the, what do we really know the Pharisees as? I gave it away. You can say it. The modern definition of Pharisees tells this story for us. A member of an ancient Jewish sect distinguished by strict, strict observance of the traditional and written law and commonly held to have pretensions to superior sanctity. A self-righteous person, a hypocrite. Right? Have you ever heard a message about the hypocritical Pharisees? Have you ever heard someone accused of being Pharisaic because they did something hypocritical? Of course you have. And what is, what is not known about the Pharisees by the majority of people who read the Gospels is that the Pharisees were the people's people. The Pharisees were the people's people to a large degree. They were, they were respected. They were honored. They, were, they led by example in many cases. They inspired hope. You know what they taught about? The resurrection and the kingdom and the coming of Messiah. Does that sound familiar? I know a guy we all really love who taught the very same things. Why? Well, we'll see. But what about the vitriolic criticism we find throughout the New Testament, even from the very mouth of Yeshua toward these guys? What about the fact that they killed Jesus? 
And what about the fact that they were legalistic and they put people under these, these heavy burdens? And yeah, what about all those Pharisee messages? You're telling me everybody who gave me a Pharisee message was wrong? And actually, while we're at it, forget about those sermons. I don't need anyone else to tell me. I can read the New Testament. Rabbi, you always tell us to read the book and, and let it speak to us. Read the text. That's not what I tell you. I tell you to read the text in context. And much of the historical context of the Pharisees and Judaism of Yeshua's days, lost abandoned, masked, canceled, done away with. So we need to do that real quick. Here it is. An important understanding of the Pharisees. You must keep in mind that Pharisee is not a monolithic term. It's like saying Americans or Baptists. Every Baptist is exactly the same, right? No. And every American... Every American is, is also American. I'm American flag. I want to dial us in on one point to make this, to, to, to focus this in. And it is between two schools of thought. The Hillel school and the Shammai school. Anyone familiar with these guys? Okay, well, you should be. Hillel died around 10. He was a great teacher. 10 CE or AD. Okay, Shammai around 30. Hillel was sort of the peaceful guy. Shammai was kind of the, 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 the rough and tough guy. And Hillel was, was more lenient and sort of the, the perception is interested more in brotherly love. So here's something, but, but they were two very, very influential and important parts of the Judaism of Yeshua's day. And they kind of went head to head on a lot of things. There is a they, uh, 316 controversies between these two schools are preserved in the pages of the Talmud, affecting 221 laws, 29 interpretations, 66 fences, and out of those, only 55 present the Shamaites on the side of leniency. What does that mean? Hillel was kind of like lovable. Shammai wasn't so much if you look at just this thing. And here it brings us to a wonderful and memorable statement that I never want you to forget. Two Jews, three opinions. Monolithic Judaism hardly, hardly is a thing that exists. So I told you, you know, Judaism is very diverse. So was the Pharisaic party. So often that these disciples would often come to blows, the Hillelites and the Shammaites would butt heads about, my master said this, my master said this. And here's a great story of Shammai and Hillel. The Talmud in Shabbat tells about a Gentile who wanted to convert to Judaism. This happened not infrequently, and the individual stated he would accept Judaism only if a rabbi would teach him the entire Torah while he, the prospective convert, stood on one foot. First, he went to Shammai, who, insulted by this ridiculous request, threw him out of the house. There's one that says they, Shammai smacked him with a ruler or something. I can't remember what it was that he hit him with, but he was like... Get out of here. The man did not give up and he went to Hillel. The gentle sage accepted the challenge and said, What is beautiful to you? 
do not do to others. That is the whole Torah. The rest is explanation of this. Go and study it. Man, I'm sorry? Oh, 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 what did I say? What is hateful to you? (laughs) Thank you very much. Let's back up. Hillel, the nice guy, said, What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is explanation of this. Go and study it. Does any of that sound slightly familiar to you? This is a hilarious thing in Jewish encyclopedia. It may be assumed without argument that Hillel's answer to the proselyte, which is extant in a narrative in the Babylonian Talmud, was generally known in Palestine and that it was not without its effect on the founder of Christianity. Jesus, the founder of Christianity, is how Jewish encyclopedia sees him. That's not the point. I find that humorous. What is the point is that Hillel is saying something long before Yeshua said it. Why? Because it was Jewish thought. And Hillel was very influential. So whether you were familiar with Hillel and Shammai before this or not, that's a very, very basic overview because it's a long topic. But if you were not, it's very important that you understand the historical context of what was happening in Israel at this time when Yeshua, Jesus, was growing up. Remember when he went to the temple during Passover and stayed behind for three days and was listening and talking and learning? Do you know who was probably there on the steps discussing things? Hillelites and Shammaites, and Yeshua is sitting there, and he's taking it in, and he's growing in wisdom and stature. In other words, we see Jesus the rabbi being born in the milieu of Jewish culture and teaching. But what about the critiques of the Pharisees, the insults? What about the things that are in the New Testament about this? Well, I touched on this last week. We are seeing a great, uh, not great, it's, it's incredibly difficult to see this modern example of what, we're, uh, of what is going on with the Pharisees. Ravi Zacharias is a man who did incredible good. Incredible good affected so many lives, debated, helped, save. I couldn't even tell you the number of people that Ravi Zacharias influenced. Many in this room. And yet behind the scenes, we've now found out posthumously a major moral failure, which is sort of the definition of hypocrisy. I am one thing here and This over here, and you don't want to see what's over here. Isn't that what hypocrisy is? And this has happened, you know it. It's from my my first remembrance of this was Jimmy Swaggart back in the 80s. This has happened and happened and happened with leaders like this, high profile pastors and rabbis who, who fail and illustrate with perfection hypocrisy. 
but not all. I have a number of very good friends who are rabbis, pastors, who pursue justice and righteousness with their core, who teach, who influence, who, who protect the innocent. So you can't say that because some had a moral failure or were hypocrites, you can't whitewash that to use Yeshua's, one of his criticisms of the Pharisees, your whitewashed tombs. You can't do that. It doesn't work. You can't say, in this case, a few bad apples spoil the bunch. It's usually true, but not here. And the same thing could be said with generalizations about Christians and Jews. Atheists and people who deny God love to say, eh, you Christians. That's not fair. And neither is this categorization and description of the people's people in the time of Yeshua, who were the Pharisees. But you see, if I had seen Ravi or any, anyone else, Tammy, not Tammy Faye, Jim Baker as another famous example, if I had seen them doing these things, it would have been my obligation to say, what are you doing? You can't do that. You have to make this right. You can't do that. People respect you. You represent God to so many and so the Pharisees themselves were very, very critical of hypocrisy. And it would not surprise us in any way to see Yeshua coming and standing and criticizing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Listen to this. This is from, uh, there are seven kinds of Pharisees. This is rabbinic literature about Pharisees. Jews wrote this. There are seven kinds of Pharisees. The shoulder Pharisee who ostentatiously carried his good deeds on his shoulder so all can see them. The wait-a-moment Pharisee who wants you to wait while he performs a mitzvah. The bruised Pharisee who runs into a wall while looking at the ground to avoid seeing a woman. The reckoning Pharisee who commits a sin then does a good deed and balances the one against the other. The pestle Pharisee whose head is bowed in false humility like a pestle in a mortar. The Pharisee who asks, what is my... And it goes on. Of these, only one is designated as good. The very last one. And the Pharisee from love. So, when you read the New Testament as if it is something other than a Jewish document, you insert a theological bias that isn't there. This is like a mother punishing her own children and not someone else's kids because that's not her responsibility. Daniel Lancaster says it well because Yeshua's own theology and practice ran so close to the Pharisees. That's sort of shocking, huh? But it's so true. The Pharisees fell under his immediate concern. In religious dialogue, we experience the fiercest conflict with those most similar to ourselves. That is what was happening in the New Testament. Last week's teaser, I left you with this. Matthew 23, 1 through 3. This should be something that should bring so many questions to the mind. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. 
How many times have you read that? How many times have you glossed over it and said, I don't even know what it means, I don't care what it means, uh, you know, it's just in there, the New Testament's confusing. you got to know what that means, because it affects you to this day. So let's assume just for one second, and I hope you're still with me, I'm making, moving to second point here. Let's assume for one second that every Pharisee was a power-hungry, manipulating, uh, 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 hypocrite. It's, it's wrong, it's not true, but humor me. Let's make, this, let's make this argument, okay? Where, according to Yeshua, where, according to Yeshua, given that assumption, were we supposed to get our biblical information of how to live our lives? I can help you. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. What were they telling you? Forget about what they were doing. What were they telling them? This is a very, 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 very big problem for Christianity that wants to suggest that Jesus did away with the law, the Torah, the laws of Moses, that now by believing in Jesus as Messiah, the other things that Jews used to do, those are dead, that's bad. This we saw actually supported in some of our early church father critique, right? That God had this for them, but not anymore. Here, my friends, we see these are Yeshua's words in the New Testament, documented, supporting the law of Moses and even beyond into what would be called the oral law. And I'll make that point at the end very briefly. It cannot be denied, however, that among lawmakers we find hypocrisy, corruption, and manipulation, heavy burdens at times placed upon people. Man, that sounds familiar. Mm, mm, surely, people, surely, surely, tell me I'm, tell me I'm incorrect. That people in power would, would ever talk the talk and not walk the walk. It couldn't be. Surely power wielded by a few could never lead to inappropriate behavior or manipulations of the masses. No! There is a town just to the east of us. It's a big white building in it. It's got a big rotunda on the top of it. It's called Washington, D.C. Have you ever seen the hypocrisy that goes on in Washington, D.C.? Here's the point. Just because our politicians and judges may be corrupt and completely and totally unethical, inept, and ignorant, I did not say they are. I said they may be. It does not remove the power and foundation of the Constitution of the United States of America. It is our governing document. It is the foundation of our country. Ready for the problem? If you try to take it away, if you try to destroy the foundation, if you try to pull the carpet out from underneath the tablecloth off the Shabbat table, the whole thing collapses. And that is what has happened in modern religion. 
It's so relevant right now. When you take away the foundation, the building crumbles. So, contrary to popular belief, Yeshua did not come to create a new religion, write a new Bible, or destroy the Jewish one. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 5, we read it today, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he goes on to say that anyone who teaches somebody to not do these things is going to be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. And he, once again, there he goes again, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Outside of his Jewish rabbinic second temple Pharisaic context, this, con- this, this important scripture has been reinterpreted to fit into this new religion that he supposedly established. And I told you this, I think, last, last week. The translation, modern way of reading this, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, go back, sorry, not that, go back. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to abolish them. That's the way it's read. Not read, it's the way it's understand. It It says what it says. In context, it says what it says. It says to fill full. Fulfill, fill full, fill full, fill full, full, fill full. To give you a proper understanding of relationship with God and a relationship and reconnection with his instructions. Yeshua says this, I came to show you the way. I came to show you what kingdom living looks like because this new covenant I'm inaugurating, you know what it's built on? Torah. The Torah. That's what God's placing in your heart. So how could he possibly throw it away? And the argument that should immediately come to mind from my my critics in the room or wherever they are, but Jesus came to save the world from their sins because the Jews taught that you had to earn your salvation. You're telling me that he, he you, be, you believe that Jesus said we have to work our salvation out? No, uh, guess what? Jesus didn't come up with the idea of repentance either. You know who did? Well, Hashem did, that's correct. But before the foundations of the world, but the prophets and the Pharisees and all the people that came before him had already been talking about this. Men are sinful, the Pharisees said. They're in need of God's grace. Judaism never believes a man can earn his salvation. What made Jesus different, though, is in his position, he was the way that was going to come about. And that the leaders did not care for that too much. But you know what? He didn't care for them in some ways. You know what his big critique was? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven in front of people. You're not going in yourselves, and you're keeping other people from getting in. There it is again. The gospel message of Yeshua. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and you hypocrites are keeping people from doing it. And the Sermon on the Mount, though. I mean, Rabbi, come on. No one had ever 
No one had ever taught like this and nothing like that. I mean, Jesus, Jesus was a total radical. He turned everything on its ear. No one even knew what to do with him. He corrected all the wrong things in Judaism. You've heard it said, but I tell you. What does that mean? That is a contrasting statement. What it says is, you heard Moses say this, but Moses lied to you. I'm telling you the truth. You ready for it? But here's the big problem. You guys just try to navigate these slides for me if you can make this point. I mean, if I can make this point with the slides. You have heard it said, but I tell you. Yeshua was speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic. He wasn't speaking Latin or Greek. And this word, this conjunction or whatever it's called, my grammar is horrendous. But, but, but's not a good word. That but's too big to fit in there. That doesn't work. That but communicates very improperly. Here's what it is. You've heard it said, and I tell you. Or even better, you've heard it said, yet I say to you. And what is he doing? He's building on an existing foundation with which he came to expand and show you and fulfill the word of God. Yeshua's things did not make life easier for you if you're a disciple of his. How much easier is it to not commit adultery or to not look at someone attractive, scantily clothed or whatever, men? How much, how, what is more difficult to, to love, to hate your enemy or love your enemy. I mean, my goodness sakes, do you know what he did? He came and he did something that Judaism had been doing for a long time. He built a fence around the Torah. He didn't throw it down. Here's what the Mishnah says, Pirkei Avot. Moses received the Torah from Sinai. He gave it over to Joshua. Joshua gave it over to the elders, the elders to the prophets, and the prophets gave it over to the men of the great assembly. They, the men of the great assembly, would always say these three things. Be cautious in judgment. Establish many pupils. And make a safe defense around the Torah. What in the world does that mean? That means the Torah is good and perfect and pure. And you don't want to get yourself so close to it that you might violate it. So what we're going to do is we're going to build a fence around it. It's like when you put a fence around a swimming pool, it's a legal requirement. You, you can say all day long, now listen, little Johnny, the pool will hurt you. I don't want you to go close to the pool. Do you think he's going to listen when he wants to get in the pool? No, you build a fence around the pool that keeps little Johnny from getting anywhere close to the danger of the swimming pool. And that's what it means to build a fence around the Torah. So when Yeshua is making Torah for you, he's saying, here's the basics of Torah. Here's an expansion and beautiful way that you can live kingdom life, holiness, and never go close to transgressing the actual commandment. But it's built on 
Judaism. It's built on the Torah. It's not. People have said, he came and he made it so hard so that you'd understand why you could never live up to it. I already know that. So do you. You know you're not perfect. But he was filling full the Torah for you and helping you to live an even godlier life, a kingdom life. And so, in conclusion, I think, a rabbi, and he was, though that term may be a bit anachronistic, he was, what does a rabbi do? A rabbi teaches, that's the primary, and shepherds, he was, he was a really good rabbi. But a rabbi that, that taught what Western Christianity suggests that Jesus taught, guess what? Not one single person would have ever followed him. Not one single Jew would have gotten in line and said, Hey, I like where you're headed, buddy. Pepperoni pizzas, I'm in. And we'll talk about pepperoni pizza next week. Not one disciple, and certainly not thousands, and certainly not millions, by potentially the end of you know, Israel and getting kicked out. Who knows? There's a lot of numbers about how many Jews actually became followers of Yeshua. But here's the point. Not one if he threw out the Torah. If his teaching was not based on teaching that he had heard before. But there's something incredibly, incredibly unique about Yeshua. His authority, his authority was like none that had come before him. Now, I, wanna, I, I, I need to share, you the, share this with you because it's just so good. But was his teaching in line with, with Jewish teaching or did he create something radically new? These were the questions we wanted to set out to answer. Did he teach that the Torah was dead? No. Did he teach that Moses was a liar and superseded? No. Did he teach that the Sanhedrin, the judges, that their decisions were invalid? No, he did not. That the Pharisees had no place in people's lives? No, he did not. That no one was bound by God's Torah or instruction? No, he did not. And even the rabbinic traditions, and there are several examples throughout the New Testament of this, but here's the greatest one, or the easiest one. How's that? <clears throat> Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. We're in Matthew 23. Oh, wait, no, we're not. We're in verse 23 of wherever we were before. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. There it is. Remember what we don't do with that, though? It ain't monolithic. For you... Well, I'm sorry, back up. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness, those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So what do we have right there? Something really important, something really interesting going on. Where in the Torah is it commanded to, grow, to tithe on things that grow wild in the fields like herbs? It's not. Where is it discussed that you would tithe your herbs in a way to really honor God with literally everything he's blessed you with? 
in the rabbinic writings, in the extra laws that the scribes and Pharisees added. So what is Yeshua saying? He's echoing what he already said. They sit in the seat of Moses. Listen to what they say. Do what they say, but don't do what they do. What he's saying right here is, yeah, the Pharisees told you to tithe your mint, dill, and cumin. Great, do that. And now he's saying to them, you're telling these people to do these things and you stink at it. So he's supporting in such a powerful way the, 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 the rabbis. Because Jesus loved his Judaism. And Jesus, 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 it's why I say Yeshua, it's easier. Yeshua, he taught these Jewish things. But as I said, wasn't, wasn't he a radical? So you're saying he was like every other rabbi, rabbi? No, because Yeshua had an authority from heaven. Not that other rabbis didn't have an authority from heaven, but within Yeshua dwelt the fullness of God. He was the one. He was the prophet who Moses said you need to be looking out for, the teacher. He was going to be the one who was going to fulfill Moses, and here he was to do it. Yeshua was not a Pharisee. I want to make that very clear. Yeshua was not a Pharisee. But more, in, more insight, this is from a great book called The Galilean Jewishness of Jesus. More insight into Jesus in his continuity with them than in his discontinuity. You can see more of Yeshua when you connect him with the Pharisaic party that he grew up around and taught like. But it's still fall. It's, it's still... It, it, Authority, authority, authority. Scriptures show that people were amazed with Yeshua. Why? Because he didn't teach like anyone else. And one of the main ways we see that is so often there was a method. We talked about how the Torah was transmitted and the laws and the lessons. We see this. Rabbi Eliezer says in the name of Rav Yehoshua, you've heard it said, that was citing an opinion that came before you to establish one of your own. When did Yeshua say that? When did Yeshua say, you've heard Rav Hallel said, in the name of Rav Shammai, I say, never. And that's why people said things like, oh my goodness, who is this guy? His authority, he doesn't teach like the scribes and the Pharisees. He's unique. And that's true. So I want you to take that and put it in your bank of theological certainties. Yeshua was unique. And he spoke with a unique authority that has never been and never will be again. But what he was speaking and teaching was what kind of teaching? Torah-based Jewish tradition and expression built on the foundations of his Jewish faith. Got it? Two lessons we talked about here. We talked about Pharisees, who they are, and we talked about the Torah and what made Yeshua unique. 
and where he got these things. So now we know what his message was not. And we've arrived there and we scratched the surface of that really. But, but knowing what something is not doesn't actually tell you what it is. And so we need to, to conclude, conclude. I'm having a lot of problems speaking today. <laughs> My hope is somehow to conclude all of this material into a reasonable amount of time next week, discussing Jesus concluding in his Jewish context his message. What was his message? And there are some things that we will talk about, Shabbat and dietary laws, but ultimately we're going to end up where it all needs to end up, where it started and where it needs to end. The gospel message of the Jewish Jesus. Believe in me, when you die, you'll go to heaven. That's not the gospel Jewish message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is on the brink of arrival. Shabbat Shalom. We're building the kingdom and thankful that you're a part of that mission. If this teaching inspired you, please consider a financial gift to support the work of Shalom Macon. Visit MaconMessianic.com and click Give Online. May the Lord bless and keep you.